Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Our embittered politics seemed to turn one more notch this week with grave implications for the country and the American people. The January 6th committee accused Republican members of Congress of giving tours to insurrectionists of the secret chambers of the Capitol the day before all hell broke loose and then lying about it. If the committee has the evidence to make the charge stick, it would actively implicate Republican members in the criminal conspiracy to obstruct the certification of President Biden on January 6th. A crazed shooter in New York drove several hours to a majority black section of Buffalo and opened fire there, killing 10 people. The killer sought not only to mow down African-Americans, but to rally others to his monstrous cause. He published a long racist political manifesto and invited people to watch the massacre in a special chat room he set up for the occasion. A big round of midterm elections left Democrats in a generally unenviable position, delivered at least a couple important victories to candidates who had gained Donald Trump's endorsements and made nominees of several big lie zealots openly committed to overruling the popular vote if it doesn't go there, that is Trump's way. And the political world continued to hold its breath, awaiting possible serious investigative moves from the Department of Justice, which demonstrated the breadth and pace of its work with a request to the January 6th committee for write-ups and transcripts from the more than 1,000 witnesses it has interviewed or deposed. To help analyze these political battles and their alarming stakes, we welcome back three of the nation's sharpest, most prolific, and most respected commentators, all, happily for us, regular guests on the podcast. And they are... John Alter, an award-winning author, political analyst, documentary filmmaker, columnist, television producer, and radio host. He's the author of three New York Times bestsellers and a former senior editor of Newsweek. 2020 marked his 10th presidential election in print and the internet. In 2021, he launched a newsletter, Old Goats Ruminating with Friends, devoted to tapping the wisdom and experience of some remarkably accomplished guests. Thanks for returning to Talking Feds, John. Thanks, Harry. David Frum, a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of 10 books, most recently, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy and Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. He served in government as a speechwriter for President George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002, and he's been a leading voice in Republican politics since the first Ronald Reagan campaign in 1980. He's been a guest on the podcast many times, but it's been a minute, and we're really pleased to welcome him back. Thanks very much, David Frum. Thank you. And Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AEI's Election Watch, a contributing editor for the National Journal, and a prolific author, including co-writing the bestseller One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, and the not-yet-deported, a title that seems more and more prescient every week. He is, I'm happy to say, a talking fed stalwart. Always a pleasure to have you join, Norm. Always a pleasure to be with you, Harry. All right. So let's start with the 1-6 committee, the pace it seems to be accelerating there as they near their debut on the national stage in just a few weeks. The latest thunderclap, a letter from the committee to Representative Barry Loudermilk of Georgia alleging that he, Loudermilk, has information of tours lawmakers gave on January 5th to groups associated with the next day's mayhem. So a rumor that was swirling around, but has now for the first time really hit the ground. Norm, I gather from your tweet, the charge strikes you as credible. Any thoughts as to what the committee is holding here? What I tweeted was that uh, over five decades or more, I've just spent countless hours inside the Capitol 
And I visited in the uh, private rooms, we call them the hideaway offices of the leaders of both parties. They're unmarked. You can't tell unless somebody takes you there directly. And we know that people, violent insurrectionists who were in the Capitol, had gone to these offices. They had a roadmap. Somebody gave them the roadmap. We know that tours were prohibited because of COVID, and it is apparent that tours took place. It certainly appears that they have video footage. I saw yesterday Loudermilk uh, issued a statement, which was, I had some tourists who visited and they never entered the Capitol, which of course has nothing to do with what might be there. When Jamie Raskin said that they have explosive things that have not yet been clear to the public, this is one of them. It's pretty clear. And my guess is it's not just Barry Loudermilk who is sweating today. They would be so imprudent to be uh, faking or only having it sort of in half measure. And this has been a pretty prudent committee. This is, I think, as seismic as you get. You think of juxtaposing these tours with the next day and Pence and all the lawmakers cowering. And I said this off the cuff, but it's sort of akin to somebody giving Muhammad Atta a cockpit plan on September 9th or something. This is really, really treacherous stuff. And a lot of members of Congress very likely involved. Is that right? You think, you think many Republicans are in on this and they know something's happening. They know that there's a plan to occupy the spaces the next day. Pre-planned, including members of Congress, that there would be a violent entrance to the Capitol and an attempt to overturn the results of an election. How much more explosive could you get, except for the president's direct involvement? Is it so much that it seems dubious? What do you think? The last piece will remain forever missing, and that's the link to Donald Trump personally. As with the Russia collusion story, what you'll see is one actor in the plot behaving a certain way, and the other actor in the plot reacting a certain way. And what you're not going to find is the connection between the two. And maybe because the connection never existed, maybe you don't actually need to do it. There is a kind of signaling that people can do non-verbally without writing. And so I think the last line of defense will be on January 6th. Okay, yes, it may be true that some of the weirdos in the Republican caucus were overreacting, but you can't prove Donald Trump told them to do it. And while it will be obvious that they were acting on the president's will and wish, as it was obvious that Donald Trump welcomed Russian interference with the 2016 campaign, that last piece, which is going to provide deniability for the leaders of the Republican Party, that last piece, I suspect, will not be closed. And so it will not have the political impact that you might have been suggesting half a minute ago. So I half agree with that. I think Trump does have a way of keeping his fingerprints off things. He doesn't uh, use email, for instance. Even his own son, Don Jr., was afraid to be directly in touch with him on January 6th and it communicated through Mark Meadows. So it may be that you're right about that, but I've changed my view on whether Trump is going to escape unscathed. Because I think if you look at all of this from Merrick Garland's perspective, he needs to take into consideration as We've heard a number of times Eric Holder has pointed this out. He needs to take into consideration what the impact of this would be moving forward with the prosecution. But he also needs to now consider what the impact would be of not moving forward with a prosecution on the country. And after these June hearings in the January 6th committee, which I assume will be explosive, I don't think Jamie Raskin is promising something he cannot deliver, after those hearings, and we see a lot of this laid out in public, then there will be more pressure on the Justice Department. And we know already this week that they've asked the January 6th committee for transcripts of many of their interviews. I think they've interviewed a thousand people or something. So clearly the Justice Department is interested in doing some investigation of whether they should get involved and possibly indict. And I think that pressure will just grow over time. The other thing that people are ignoring is that there's no real clock ticking on Merrick Garland. Everybody is assuming that 
the same clock is ticking on the Justice Department that's ticking on the January 6th committee, which obviously has to get everything done before the election. Merrick Garland has two and a half years in which he could possibly indict Donald Trump. And I'm increasingly believing that he will do so. I want to follow up and get to the committee in a, in a second, but I just want to stop back at the level of what you've called, David, and on the Republican crazies. We've had things where they look complicit, generally encouraging of Trump or craziness in the party. But this, legally, it's seditious conspiracy, I think, but even more than that, it's politically stunning. If they have the goods, the committee, on one or more Republicans actually giving tours to people who are going to be invading the next day and finding their way to secret chambers in the Congress, can the Republicans at the McCarthy level just fold their arms and say there's nothing here, move along, as they've been doing to date? Look, we know, Harry, why they resisted the bipartisan commission idea. We know why they uh, didn't want to have this committee occur in the first place. Televised hearings may show even more. And here I would disagree slightly with David. It may be that Donald Trump has tried very much to avoid any direct involvement here with any evidence. But there are going to be emails and texts coming from some of these other players who weren't necessarily that careful. Very possibly some of them going directly to the president, certainly many of them going to Mark Meadows. If we look at what Mark Meadows gave over to the committee voluntarily and how explosive that was, imagine what's in the materials he didn't give over. And this is going to provide more impetus to subpoena some more of those records Donald Trump, we know when he said, I don't even know what a burner phone is, gave us direct evidence that he was using burner phones. With signals coming from the White House, they're going to be able to track what phones there were and where the calls were going. My guess is there's going to be an enormous amount of circumstantial evidence that will show that Trump was talking on a regular basis on January 4th, 5th, 6th, and beyond with some of the perpetrators of this. And that's going to make it, especially as John said, much more difficult for Merrick Garland to just say, well, we don't want to get into this. It's going to put, I think, a lot of pressure on the Justice Department to take this to its logical conclusion. But Harry's question was about Kevin McCarthy. Can Kevin McCarthy resist this pressure? And the answer is, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is in the situation like Soviet troops in the Second World War that um, the Germans ahead might shoot them. The commissars behind definitely will shoot them. <laughs> so, yeah. Great analogy. Wow. Great analogy. I've missed you so much, David. That, that's up there with tequila and quaaludes. All right. Sorry. Yeah. Keep going. So if he cooperates in any way, he cannot remain Republican leader. So he will not cooperate because as he's amply demonstrated. He, he's not prepared to fall on his sword for some abstract principle like the survival of American democracy. He's got a career yeah. to continue. And while I'm sure he will want to be actually speaker for the shortest amount of time necessary to vest his career, the difference between what that K Street career is if he locks in the top job versus never quite locking it in is enormous. So he has to get to the top job. He has to survive for at least you know a year of a Republican majority to deliver enough favors to be worth something in the future. American democracy you know, I, I wouldn't say I don't think he doesn't care about it at all, but a man has to have a sense of priorities. And and for him, the priority is my future. All right, fair enough. But let's just understand the implications if they really have a strong case here, which is they bring the case and it is in vivid video and what? There's just no comment from the Republican party on what will seem like absolutely stunning behavior from their constituents. That means they're going to let the Dems in the committee just tell that story. And this is, I, I, I just want to repeat, I think a, a different level of treachery than the accusations to date. Harry, just one thing on that. I agree it's at a different level, but the lying is at a different level also. The lying about this, you mean? The lying by the Republicans across the board. Okay. So what they have learned, and, and this has been reinforced by the fact that everybody's telling them they're going to have this red tsunami this fall and that 
They've got enormous enthusiasm on the part of their voters. What they have learned is that they can lie not only without personal remorse, but lie without political consequence. And this is a very dangerous lesson for these politicians to be absorbing and then making future decisions about future lies based on. Let me just ask you then, Josh, by lying here, you mean they're going to say, here's the videotape, who you're going to believe? You're, yeah, you know. me or your lying eyes. They'll, they'll say anything, you yeah. know, Harry. They'll say, oh, well, these tapes could have been doctored. The Democrats may have doctored these tapes. What's the chain of custody of these tapes? How do you know that they're really turning left instead of right on that hallway? The hideaways aren't really there. The insurrectionists said, Nancy, Nancy, come out, come out. That proves they didn't know where Nancy Pelosi's office is. They will have a million excuses for why they they don't do what these tapes indicate. Okay, fair enough. Certainly that's of a piece to date. It does seem like it would be quite a concession to try to shift gears now and you know basically jam it into reverse. Okay, let's go where you guys were running to, and I guess everyone's thinking about now, the DOJ and how this plays out. I want to make one point about what Norm said and then ask it from the point of view of the committee. And the point is, if you are Merrick Garland and it feels like John and others, and I've got to put myself in this camp, are slowly coming around to the view that the only thing worse for the country than prosecuting Trump would be not prosecuting him. Something you really can justifiably consider, what's going to be clear at the end of these hearings is not only is the case for guilt and criminal conduct strong, but the absolute lack of remorse and the continued social toxicity of thumbing the nose at the rule of law and the system has now persisted since January 6th. That's something that the DOJ can and has to really take into account. Returning to John's point, the DOJ says, and says it a month ago, right? The the Times report took a month to come to light, but April 20th, they send a letter saying, give us all you got. The committee obviously wasn't jumping at this, and they're still kind of arm's length. From their point of view, when and under what terms might they be willing to sort of deliver the mother load? My sense of this is that the committee is going to hold these hearings, many of them in prime time. They're going to want to make, probably using some pretty powerful video other than the whatever security camera shots they have, that this was a seditious conspiracy going right up to the top. They want to send a powerful message out to the country at how awful and pernicious this was. And as soon as those hearings are over, they're going to turn evidence over to the Justice Department. And I think that will put a significant amount of additional pressure on not just Merrick Garland, but Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, who's probably really the one who's going to be the driving force in taking any prosecutions forward. And let's be clear that we're not just talking about Donald Trump. I've been struck that the Justice Department seized all of these devices from Rudy Giuliani a long time ago, and we haven't heard anything yet. I got to believe that there are communications between Giuliani and Trump that are themselves pretty explosive. There are going to be a lot of people, Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, many others, who are going to be caught up in this net as well. And I would guess the Justice Department is systematically going to go after them as they go after Trump. Ultimately, I don't see how they can avoid it if this evidence is as clear as it might be. All right. And two DOJ-centric points. First, on the point about the Meadows text, he gives over some and then he pulls the plug. If the DOJ gets involved, no funny business here, one search warrant and all the texts are there's all this stuff. No one's going to screw around. And the second point I just want to make besides Lisa Monaco, they've brought over someone, a well-respected career guy whose charge is specifically to try to construct from what they have in their own 800 prosecutions of the people on the ground, cases against the political actors. So they are certainly looking at it seriously. Okay. But the other guy gets a vote. And the answer to what you were just saying is one of the things that you have to consider when you're thinking about what, do, what are the DOJ's options to build on Jonathan Alter's point about what the Republicans will say. I think the imminence of indictments forces Donald Trump's hand to declare early as a 2024 candidate. He may not even wait 
until the midterm elections. If he does that, he, he drives so many people out of the race. DeSantis is obviously hoping that Trump somehow goes away on his own, but DeSantis is going to take no action to stand up or resist. Once Donald Trump declares, then the path for what Republicans say becomes evident, which is they don't have to defend, I mean, not the respectable ones, the like Kevin McCarthy's, they don't have to defend the insurrection. What they say is, this is an attempt to prejudge the 2024 election. Whatever we think about what happened in 2020, we're going to have an election. And this is an attempt to interfere with the Donald Trump candidacy. And they will just abstain. They won't lie. They'll just abstain. They'll say it's a political question. And we have no role here. This is the ballot question for 2024. So the more imminent the indictment is, if there is an indictment, the more imminent is the Donald Trump candidacy with all that that entails. So I completely agree with that. And I think that puts the onus on Democrats to change their whole frame of reference on Trump and the Republicans. And there are many Democrats and many people in the press who continue to say, well, if you say this about Trump, then the Republicans will respond this way. And if you do this, it won't be politically popular. And if you do this, the Trump base will go crazy. Democrats have to just stop being concerned in any fashion about what the reaction will be from Republicans. They will attack no matter what. So Democrats just do what's right and damn the political consequences. And sometimes when you do what's right and damn the political consequences, you get in trouble politically. Other times, because of the way politics works, you end up ahead of the game. The point is they should stop factoring in the reaction of extremist Republicans. They just shouldn't worry about how Trump Republicans will react to anything that they do, either legally or politically. To me, this is a central kind of mental change that Democrats have to undertake. Because I hear over and over again in talking to Democrats, oh, well, if you know if we do this, then they'll go crazy and they'll do that. Stop worrying about it. They're going to attack Democrats no matter what. Just move forward. Says the voice of 10 presidential elections. It is really true. The idea that, like, should we not subpoena them because then they won't subpoena us if they're in charge. Oh, I know. That's crazy. Like, right. Exactly. All right. Quick closeout here. They are simultaneously doing dress rehearsals, but also writing the script, kind of Shakespeare style. But we hear in the committee, there's a clash between the sort of Cheney wing of Trump, 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 Trump. And others who say we have to focus on legislation and corrective action going forward. I gather we have three votes here for Cheney's Trump, 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 Trump line is what they should be doing. Yes. If the question is the January 6th committee, should they try to draw the guilt as close to Donald Trump as possible? I think that's the, the pending question because it will miss what happened. If all that happened was a couple of weirdo Congress people got involved in a riot. Well, gosh, I mean, I'm sure that was true in with the anti-Vietnam protests. I'm sure there are weirdo Congress people got. You, what you need to show is that the thing we all thought we saw on national television, when the president of the United States urged on, on TV with cameras going, urged on TV a mob to go and attack the Capitol and bring reason to Mike Pence, who's vice president, that thing we saw happen, it actually happened. There is a middle ground, David. In other words, it would be, yeah, it happened. We're not going to go to ultimate guilt, but we re- people did certainly try to lie after, and we want to correct to keep it from happening in the future. That's, that's sort of one approach, and the other, the finger of history pointing at the 45th president of the United States. Harry, they have to do both. I mean, the fact that, they, that the Congress has not yet corrected this 19th century legislation, they haven't moved forward with that, is disturbing. They need to do that this summer. They need to pass those corrective measures this summer. But to let Trump off the hook would be, I think, not just shameful currently, but it would damn them in history. Just to give you some indication of why, I would direct your attention to Mitch McConnell's speech right after the acquittal, where, you know, he's trying to sort of lamely explain why the Republicans didn't just vote to remove Trump and prevent him from ever running again, convict him. And he basically says, um, well, it's now up to the criminal justice system. And there's a lot of evidence that they have. 
So he knew in real time that the president had committed crimes. If Mitch McConnell knew that, how can the January 6th committee back off? If you don't close the loop, if you don't acknowledge what we all saw happen, we all become complicit. What, we, what we've essentially said is it would be just too upsetting to the American political system to believe this about a past president. So even though we all saw it happen, and even if, as I suggest at the beginning, it turns out there is an absence of direct connection, that the circumstantial case will be so strong, that's something we need to be unafraid to say, because it's not just he might do it again. He's out there. He's like putting up billboards saying, I will do this again. He did it this week about Pennsylvania. Yeah, Candidates for office are running on a promise to do it again. I think the best analogy is it's like what happened in the Southern state governments in the 1870s, that in the early 1870s, there were a series of attacks by defeated Confederates on the stability and security of the reconstructed Southern state governments. And there was always this hope, well, they will somehow stop before this process is complete. And in the end, they didn't stop. And the Southern state governments were overthrown by violence and one party regimes were created. Now that is an imperfect analogy. I don't think the situation is extreme as anything like that, but it, it has happened in this country before at the state level. It's in the American DNA. It's a meaningful risk at the national level, and you should act decisively as, it sh as they should have acted decisively in the 1870s to head it off while you still can. I want to take it back even further. I was at that first debate in, uh, in Cleveland. For, for, yeah. Further than the 1870s you were there? No, I, no. I mean, in, in the case of Donald Trump, <laughs> this is not something that just emerged in January or even in December. When Donald Trump at that first debate said, the Proud Boys, stand by and stand up, that to me was a signal, and I was sitting there in the hall, and it just took me aback. That was a signal of where we were going. And I think that the plan here also was that if this violence had gotten much greater in the Capitol, if people had been killed, Trump would have declared martial law right at that particular point. Remember, too, that these interviews that have been done are not just with the top dogs. Mm. The ones that matter the most, and Harry, you know this as a prosecutor, are the underlings. They're the ones, first of all, who aren't going to say, I won't testify. You can hold me in contempt and then I'll get a lawyer and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend myself. There are people who are in the room with Donald Trump when he was probably on the phone or when in the early stages they were discussing all of this. My guess is that the committee has a lot more than just a bunch of video of members of Congress doing tours of the Capitol that they've got a lot more going back further that this was pre-planned and it follows exactly on what David was saying. It's not just dealing with past crimes. It's dealing with the overt evidence that they're planning even more in the future. So one, one quick thing, Harry, that uh, I hope they have that relates to a new story from this week. Jocelyn Benson, the Secretary of State of Michigan, said in an interview with NBC News, that she had heard that Trump had said to somebody that uh, she should be charged with treason and executed for um, her role in supervising a perfectly legal election in the state of Michigan. Now, you know, somebody in the room with Trump told that to somebody who told it to Jocelyn Benson. I have no reason to doubt that that particular rumor is true. And it seems to me, very possible that the person who was talking out of school, who was telling somebody something that the president just said in their presence, may be one of the people who's testified. Because a lot of people nobody's ever heard of from the White House have given 8, 10, 15 hours of testimony before the committee. Yeah. And just to repeat, when push comes to shove at the department level, it won't even be them. It'll be the Meadows email and the you know, first direct observation that he said, shoot the protesters in the legs and all this stuff. It really, it's like a lesson of the Trump years. It always turns out as bad or worse than the craziest suppositions. It's time now for our sidebar, and this week's topic is extremely timely. It's about the prospect that the Congress, and in particular, the January 6th committee, would give use immunity to witnesses in return for their truthful testimony and the prospective problems that could cause for the Department of Justice's parallel investigation. 
And to tell us about this pertinent topic, we're really pleased to welcome singer, rapper, and writer Dessa. She's made a career of bucking genres and defying expectations. Her resume as a performer includes shows at Lollapalooza and Glastonbury, performances with the Minnesota Orchestra, and top 200 entries on the Billboard charts. She contributed to the number one album, The Hamilton Mixtape, and the RBG documentary. And in addition to her music, she has published three collections of essays and stories and has given lectures at conferences and universities across the U.S. on art, science, and entrepreneurship. So I give you the multi-talented Dessa explaining congressional use immunity. The January 6th Select Committee is considering giving immunity to Jeffrey Clark, the DOJ lawyer who schemed with then-President Trump to pressure Georgia to overturn its election results. The prospect is a lot more complicated than it sounds. The committee is considering what's called use immunity. The idea behind this kind of immunity is to pierce the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination by removing the threat of criminal sanction for truthful testimony. Congress promises the witness that nothing she says can be used against her in any criminal proceeding. That includes the actual testimony and evidence derived from it. That permits Congress to move a district court for an order compelling the witness's testimony, since the witness has been guaranteed that her words cannot be used to incriminate her. In his appearance before the committee, Clark asserted his Fifth Amendment privilege to the majority of the questions, over 100 times. Given Clark's central role in a critical episode involving Trump's efforts to overturn the election, the committee may calculate that it should provide Clark use immunity and compel him to fill in the blanks that his Fifth Amendment rights created. Use immunity is somewhat narrower than transactional immunity, which is what most people think of when they think of immunity. Transactional immunity means that in exchange for testifying honestly, the government promises the witness will never be prosecuted for certain crimes. In practice, transactional immunity is rarely given. Even with its limitations, however, Use immunity can complicate, or even negate, efforts to prosecute the witness for federal crimes. The leading case where this happened was U.S. v. Oliver North. North was perhaps the central figure in the Iran-Contra scandal, and in response to his threats to invoke the Fifth Amendment at congressional hearings, Congress granted him use immunity for his testimony. North was prosecuted for three felonies, including aiding the obstruction of a congressional inquiry, However, his convictions were reversed on appeal. That appeals court held that the Department of Justice could not prove that it had made no use whatsoever of North's congressional testimony. The court reasoned that the immunity required that even the trial witnesses had to be screened from his congressional testimony. So any grant of immunity by the January 6th committee to force Clark to testify would require DOJ prosecutors to follow an elaborate set of safeguards. At best, this would be very difficult and might make a prosecution impossible as a practical matter. To minimize these risks, Congress and DOJ need to coordinate very carefully. For Talking Feds, I'm Dessa. Thank you so much, Dessa, for that explanation. Dessa is the host of Deeply Human, a podcast created by the BBC and American Public Media that you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we pop open Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc to see if there's a right wine when it comes to white wine. Well, as the weather warms up, the chilled wine comes out, and we'll start with the most popular white, Chardonnay. Chardonnay is a grape that is influenced more by the winemaking style and where the grape is grown than any other type of grape. A lot of the flavor will come from the terroir. That's the environmental factors where it's grown, which will include the soil, topography, and climate. These are just a few of the factors that influence the flavor of Chardonnay. Cooler climates tend to create medium-body Chardonnays, with crisp flavor and hints of green apples and pears. 
On the other hand, Chardonnay that is grown in a warmer climate is typically fruitier, with hints of peach, melon, and citrus fruits, with a typically heavier body. The winemaking style also plays a big part in the flavor of Chardonnay. A very popular method uses malolactic fermentation, which gives the wine that buttery flavor and feel. Another factor that plays a role in the flavor of white wine is oak. How long the white wine has contact with oak in the aging process affects the color and tannic profile of the wine. Chardonnay is one of the few white wines that is appropriate for aging over longer periods of time. On the other hand, most Sauvignon Blanc is best consumed early in the aging process, and it's not really fit for long-term aging. I would say three to five years max. However, white Bordeaux, usually made with predominantly Sauvignon Blanc grapes, is known to age well for many years. Speaking of Sauvignon Blanc, like many wines, it's also greatly affected and influenced by terroir. Sauvignon Blanc grown in cooler climates tends to be highly acidic and crisp, with some spicy and floral notes. On the other hand, warmer climates produce much more tropical fruit flavors in Sauvignon Blanc with less acidity. So we're already seeing some differences in these two types of white wine. So whether it's a Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay kind of day, your total wine and more has a huge selection to choose from, making it an easy decision. Get both. So find what you love and love what you find. Only a total wine and more. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's move to the Buffalo Mass shooting. Hard to compare grotesque events like this, but I thought there was a stunning and surpassingly vile aspect of this shooting, which is how expressly ideological it was, complete with the manifesto, a group chat watching in real time. We have 15 people who joined to watch just before. David, you wrote that in a politicized armed society, each new massacre becomes another occasion for your mutual accusation. But there really is something, isn't there, to the accusations here that is is it fair to see this shooting in particular, besides the American exceptionalism, as you put it, of being gun crazy, as a symptom of our broader royal politics? Well, we need to distinguish here between two things. And the article I wrote dealt with the second of the two. The first is an evaluative question. Do we have a growing fascist-like movement in the United States? And the answer to that is, I think, yes. And it's not just in the United States. It's like what Islamism was in the 1990s, uh, this new sort of, I don't want to call it nationalism because it's actually quite an international movement, but whatever this movement, whatever the term is, I've tried various terms, this is a real dangerous and growing phenomenon. But it's also true if in the United States you can say, what are we to do about this, especially at the level of violence, because this movement expresses itself politically as well as violently. We have mass shootings for all kinds of ideological reasons. Remember that the shooting of the police in Dallas in um, the election year 2016 by an extremist Black Lives Matter person. We've had the Pulse killing, an Islamic killing. We will have other kinds of ideologies in the future. If the question is, how do you want to protect America? From a policy point of view, you have three choices. Live with massacres, try to police speech and thought, or try to police weapons. And most developed countries say, we don't want to live with massacres. It's hopeless and undesirable to try to police speech and thought. Why don't we police weapons? And we can't police them perfectly. There are gun massacres in Norway. There are gun massacres in France. But we can make it a lot more difficult for people to get hold of firearms, and certainly firearms larger than a handgun. And that is what would contribute to public safety. And I worry that what is going on here is that a lot of people who are indignant and rightly indignant about um, this terrible crime and the ideology and the support network of the ideology that the murderer is embedded in are going to try to, to deal with that support network and miss what the only thing that will work, which is to try to deal with the weapons. So on that point that relates to the weapons, the paucity of imagination in rethinking gun safety, I think we should all try not to say gun control because it's you're already playing on the NRA side of the field if you use gun control. But I remember Pat Moynihan used to always advocate bullet restrictions. We've got so many guns now. I think there are three times as many out there as just 25 years ago, and there are more guns than Americans. Right. So there's like 400 million guns. So the only way to really get a, on top of that, I think, is to deal with ammunition. And yes, there could be 3D ammunition. There's always going to be workarounds 
for the bad guys on any of this, but you've got to try. And what bothers me is there's a kind of despondency about even trying other public policy options. Another one that my son, Tommy, uh, has been talking about a lot in the last few days and is sitting right out there is prosecuting family members who have been negligent in the way they have raised their children. I mean, we know that, you know, the mother of the Sandy Hook gunman, she took him to a, a, a shooting range beforehand. And we have a number of examples of, of real negligence. So if in the same way that you will be prosecuted as an accessory to a crime, if you drive a car and other kids get out and rob a store, you're, you're in legal trouble too. Why are you not in legal trouble if you know that you know somebody living in your own house has been stockpiling guns and talking about killing people? Well, there are good answers. but Well, yeah. what are the good answers? I know when they're over 18, it's more difficult, but... The short good answer is, you know, in the bank robbery, you intend for the money to get stolen. It's going to be hard to prove you intend that they mow them down. Negligence in criminal law is, is tricky. But look, I generally see your point, And there is this terrible confluence of like, we have to do something, think outside the box, et cetera, with... We can never do anything. Joe Manchin, ammo or whatever would be a non-starter. It seems like a perfect stalemate that we then put to the side until the next massacre comes about. Let's not forget that this past week, two Trump judges in the Ninth Circuit basically overturned the California law that prohibited minors from getting access to AR-15s and other assault weapons. So if anything... We're going in the exact opposite direction, one that will remove every single restriction, and that includes the guns that can be printed from one's home that can't be traced in any fashion. The second point is that what's so chilling to me is the role that social media can play in creating larger armies of extremists. David talked about the the KKK and others in the 1870s. We can look at the radicals, racists in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. They were still somewhat atomized. They didn't have a way of forming that larger connection or of recruiting people in the scale that we see them recruited now. This shooter in Buffalo, of course, was motivated not just by the replacement theory that he heard on television with Tucker Carlson and others, but by New Zealand. He saw the video there. He read that manifesto. These are the kinds of things that would have been more easy to at least contain 50 years ago that are going to be much, much harder in the future. I mean, let me just ask about it. The issue was quickly joined at the level of Tucker Carlson and the demagoguery of the Fox News machine. Was it a fair line? I think you wrote about this, John, to go from Carlson's paranoid rantings about replacement theory to the killer here? And does it put the Republicans in a sort of box? Well, I don't think one needs to look at it politically, just morally in terms of some kind of moral, not direct responsibility. And it's very important to have the caveats that no, I don't think it's fair to say that there is a direct connection between Tucker Carlson and this mass murder. But he spoke about replacement theory for hundred times on his show, 400 times. Now, even if this kid was not watching Fox, that disseminates what had been a fringe idea much, much more widely in American culture. Now everybody knows about it. But the other thing is, I don't think that the pushback to it has been very smart on the part of Democrats or Republicans who realize uh, that it is a poisonous idea. The pushback should be, it's un-American. Now, un-American is a term that really, we first started to hear a lot in the 1920s. William Randolph Hearst started talking about it. Then we had the Committee on Un-American Activities. Liberals, for that reason, because it was a conservative committee, they bristled at the idea that, you know, if they embraced any kind of uh, liberal idea, they were tagged as being un-American or somehow communistic. But it's a politically really potent idea, a really useful idea politically, and one that should be used in opposition to anybody 
who comes within 100 miles of replacement theory, because we are a nation of immigrants. We have always been renewed by immigrants. This is what our country is. The idea that, no, you don't come and replace people. You come and replenish, renew, help people. And you don't even take their jobs. I mean, labor unions haven't been opposed to immigration in a long time because they realize that there is no replacement even on the job level that's going on. So it's the lack of the pushback, the wimpiness of the response in the battle of ideas that is most disturbing to me right now. That was exactly what I tried to warn against a minute ago. Maybe let me make it more explicit about this choice between live with massacres, police ideas, or police weapons. People who are appalled by what happened in Buffalo really have to choose. What are they trying to accomplish? Are they, as Jonathan said, trying to drive anti-immigration or immigration restrictionist ideas off the public stage? Or are they trying to stop massacres? Because restraining immigration is a legitimate idea. I believe in it. I'm not, so I th- of course I think it's a legitimate idea. Concerned about the impact of immigration, not only on the economy, but on the cohesion of American culture, you can try to say that's an illegitimate thing to talk about. But understand what you're doing. You're now trying to police speech and thought and not prevent massacres because what will keep people safe is the next massacre could well be Islamist. So ideologically, yeah, there's a spectrum of continuity between the Buffalo shooter and Tucker Carlson and anyone who had, yes, there is an ideological, but a methodological continuity is much more in common with the ISIS shooter at the Pulse discotheque who, who downloaded his ideas from the internet and got weapons. So you can't know what to do until you know what you're trying to achieve. And if you're, what you're trying to do is drive in anti-immigration or immigration restrictionist ideas off the public square, that points to one approach. But if you're trying to say, protect Americans from massacres, and the next one, as I say, could be Black Lives Matter, the next one could be Islamists, the next one. That we've had a vegan animal rights gun massacre in the United States. The next one could be motivated by any set of ideas. So what disturbed me as much as anything in the aftermath of Buffalo was not Tucker Carlson or Elise Stefanik refusing to take any responsibility for their reckless rhetoric. It was that you get an instance like this, which is white supremacists. It's not just anti-immigration. This is white supremacy. And we know that the bulk of uh, terrorist attacks in the United States have come not from the Islamists in the last 20 years, but from white supremacists. In the past, the leaders of both political parties would have joined together and condemned that in the starkest terms. You can separate that out from the debate over immigration. They are refusing to separate it out from the debate over immigration. They're conflating the two, and that's what's dangerous. And we don't have a responsible party anymore on the Republican side. It is a cult and the people who would speak up and who would privately say anything are afraid to speak up now. And that, I think, is the problem, David. Being against expanded immigration, that debate is a legitimate debate to have. It's one we've had since the beginning of the republic. I'm in a different place than you are, but that's a perfectly legitimate debate. This is being exploited to promote white supremacy for political purposes, and the result is violence and worse. One more thing about the numbers. I I did some work on this to try to compare and contrast the American susceptibility to gun massacres than um, to other countries. America has more gun massacres per capita than any country in the world and by far. But it is not out of line with the number of victims of gun massacres, which I was startled to see because Europe has had a series of these gun massacres. Norwegian massacre was done by a white supremacist, but in France, there have been many done by Islamists, often targeting Jews. And the total number of casualties in those, especially the Islamic gun massacres, has been so enormous that although the incidence is less, the toll is actually proportionate. So if what you're concerned about are gun massacres, you need to have a different intellectual toolkit. And remember always, by far the most frequent cause of gun massacres, although white supremacist massacres are growing, remains sexually resentful misogyny. The thing that really predicts a gun massacre is an abusive attitude to women. So I don't want you to think, A, that I don't think there's a legitimate political debate about immigration, and B, that I think that the ideological questions should overshadow the more practical questions that I mentioned when I was talking about things like bullet control. But I am kind of surprised, having read a lot of your fine writing, 
that you are not more sensitive to the historical resonance of the replacement theory debate, not just, you know, its particular origins with a French fascist intellectual, but, you know, if you look at Nazi ideology, it it really is all about replacement, you know, and when in Charlottesville, they were saying Jews will not replace us. The ideology, very particularly, and this is in the Buffalo Gunman's manifesto, is that Jews will engineer this replacement of Aryans in society. And the Jews are the middlemen, you know, who are doing this. And that's why they are, other than it just being anti-Semitism being a, a virus of history, in this particular context, they are placed as sort of the middlemen who are enabling this replacement. And so the implications of Tucker Carlson's rhetoric are dangerous. And it's not policing speech to point this out and to begin to get at least some parts of society to understand how noxious uh, replacement theory really is. I think the way you're going to deal with xenophobia and bigotry and anti-Semitism is a combination of greater prosperity at home and reduced immigration flows. I think that, that the high levels of immigration and the slow levels of economic growth that we've had in the 21st century, that, that is what is pressure cooking, this tendency to, um, of course, I'm, I'm concerned about it, but I'm also concerned about the American propensity for these massacres. So I, I just want to focus us on what is the problem you're trying to solve for? If you're trying to solve for political extremism, that calls for one toolkit. And I would say economic growth and immigration restriction are the answers to that. And if you're trying to solve for gun massacres, the, the next gun massacre could be vegan. It could be Islamist. It could be it could be anything. And by the way, I'll just add, because this has been my main issue in, in law enforcement, the solutions here are lamentably just going to be partial. You're going to try to reduce as, and mitigate as best you can. But these are you know events that come out of the cosmos. All right. We had a series of important and arguably portentous midterm primaries last week in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Idaho, among others. Let's just take a couple minutes we have left to get some sage thoughts, as I'm sure they will be, about what you see as the biggest takeaways for the major players. Well, I'll start. One takeaway is that in so many places, perhaps Madison, Cawthorn aside, the options that Republicans have in their primaries are extremists and more extremists. We don't have, uh, I wouldn't call them moderates anymore. We don't have mainstream conservatives who are winning many of these primaries. The second is the high stakes that we're seeing here. We have a Republican nominee for governor of Pennsylvania. Mastriano has made it very clear that he will do everything he can if he's governor to make sure that electoral votes go to the Republican nominee, no matter what happens in the popular vote. We know that we have a candidate for governor in Colorado, a Republican candidate, who wants to change their system to some state version of the Electoral College, which has nothing to do with why we have an Electoral College, just so that they can guarantee that Republicans can win. We have Secretary of State candidates all over the place who are ready to subvert elections. And if there isn't a concerted effort to make sure that these gubernatorial candidates in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, who are just as radical as one could possibly imagine, do not take the reins of power, or that we get people running elections who are legitimate in the process, we can kiss goodbye to fair elections and to democracy. It does seem that the actual running platform of several successful candidates. Let's just completely throw out any idea of democratic rules. So I, I agree with that, but I'm a little more optimistic, maybe Pollyannish, about the Democrats' chances. I think John Fetterman, if he stays healthy, you have to see him as the favorite for a pickup in Pennsylvania. And I'm not really seeing Democratic incumbents who are dead ducks. So I think they have a very good chance of holding the Senate. Obviously, the House is a different matter. And on the turnout question in the enthusiasm gap, which has been a real problem for Democrats, if you look at the turnout on the different primaries where they were competitive 
it continues to be a problem, but there are some indications that for a variety of reasons, and uh, the Supreme Court and Roe is, is one of them, that the enthusiasm gap is closing. And I have a sense that by November, this midterm election will have more of the feel of a general election where, you know, the fever runs high on both sides. There's quite a bit of energy on both sides and you kind of have a, a mixed result in November. And I'll just add before turning to you, David, that there will be a big uh, event we don't know yet, which is how will that Supreme Court opinion come out? And will the words Roe versus Wade is overruled remain from the draft? Well, I was going to say, I see over Jonathan's shoulder his copy of this, <laughs> this fine book. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it, among the teachings of this book is the business cycle trumps everything. And Biden, like Carter, looks to be a president with very, very bad luck on the business cycle. We've had an, an inflate over the past year. We've had price rises, inflation that has overtaken wages. I think it, there are now a lot of signs that the world economy and the U.S. economy with it are moving into recession and probably a recession that people will be feeling by the fall. So with all candidates, cultural issues, they're all there. But if in October... People are feeling, if I have a job, that my wages are not keeping up with prices, and more and more of the people I know are beginning to lose jobs, I would say my intuition about where we're going to be in that, that six-month time frame is the opposite of, of John's, that we are, we are heading toward economic trouble that is going to be very bad for the party of the president electorally. Yeah, if, if you have stagflation like you know I wrote about with Carter, um, that is a, a real political problem. <laughs> stagflation is about the worst economic uh, conditions that one can imagine uh, politically, uh, worse in some ways than high unemployment alone. And of course, up there is the perception of stagflation, whether borne out by the numbers or not. You know, uh, this is going to put a lot of burden on Biden. And I think he has not responded uh, appropriately at this point. I think what the American people need to see is a president who's fighting for them in the face of these economic problems. I would have loved to have seen him haul in the uh, top executives of the oil companies when the gasoline prices started to rise and excoriated them over their record profits and the great bonuses they were taking. I wouldn't put out of the question price control on gasoline at the pump. And, you know, when Nixon did wage and price controls, when inflation was high, they were actually quite popular. You know, it's a kind of populism and you could say it might be demagogic. But there's a point at which you have to show that you're fighting to try and deal with these problems that people are facing in their daily lives. That's not going to make all the difference. That's the situation on the ground, as David suggested. And if, in fact, the economy is really in bad shape with not just gas prices, but food prices because of the war uh, in Ukraine, it's going to be very, very difficult. And we don't have a lot of time to turn all of that around. But a lot of this is on a president who has to go out there and rail against do-nothing Republicans. You know, when you get 192 Republicans who vote against providing money for baby formula, even as they demagogue all over the place about the uh, lack of baby formula, you've got some issues you can use to run on, but they're not doing a very effective job of it at this point. Well, if what you're hoping for is effective leadership, the whole point of Biden was uh, the Democratic Party wanted to have a president who was a kind of null space that would allow them to postpone until the future all of their many disputes about who they are. So they got a president who's in null space, who postpones to the future all the debates they have. They wanted a president who seemed to come from a different time and evoke memories of long ago. And they got a president who came from a different time and evoked memories of, of long ago. So yeah, that's been true from the beginning. You've had one kind of president, a different kind of White House staff, and uh, he's, you're not going to get that from him. So whatever your plan is, if the plan is this calls for this kind of can opener, you have to face it that you don't have that kind of can opener. You've got a, a different kind of can opener. And, and with Biden, you get a kind of nostalgic yearning for a different time, but you're not going to get effective presidential leadership, especially in the kind of high intensity conflict situation that, that Norm is calling for. I think you want to make it less about Biden and more about the Republicans. And they should be called the extremist Republicans, not just the Republicans or MAGA Republicans. Never an unmodified Republican. It should always be with something that indicates how far out of the mainstream they are. And 
I don't think it would be a good idea for Biden to do what Nixon did in 1971 and impose wage and price controls, much, much less the lame whip inflation now that Gerald Ford did in 1975. Th- those kinds of things just draw attention to the fact that you, you can't get it done, right? Much more important is to come out brawling on the Republicans, more like what Harry Truman did in 1948, and so that it's a choice, not a referendum on Biden. And if it's a choice, they have a fighting chance because a lot of people, especially swing voters in the suburbs, those critically important women voters in the suburbs especially, they don't want to give these folks the keys to the car. You know, they know that if they give them the keys to the car, some bad things are going to happen. So if you keep that uppermost in their mind, yes, they will be very concerned about inflation or stagflation, but they also might be concerned about extremism. And that's where I think Roe versus Wade being overturned, which it will in all likelihood in late June or early July, that's not going to fade by election day. That will be a big issue. Will it be a crushing issue? Probably not. But will it be a non-issue? I would say anybody who's thinking that has not been paying attention to the attitude of Republican consultants who are terrified of this. They know that no abortions, even in the case of rape and incest, only has 5% backing. You don't want to be on the wrong side of a 95-5 issue, you know, if properly exploited by Democratic candidates. So Republicans out there running in general elections who have the position of Pete Ricketts, the governor of Nebraska, you know, or the folks in Oklahoma and a lot of them in Texas, no exceptions on abortion. Those folks are going to be on the defensive. And if they're not on the defensive, the Democrats should find another line of work than politics because they have a great opportunity to throw some of these forced pregnancy folks on the defensive. All right. There's an end for now of a discussion that will be getting more and more uh, intense in the coming weeks and months. We only have a couple minutes left for our Talking Five feature. But first, I just want to take a minute to express my gratitude and I think the gratitude of Talking Feds listeners. The latest answer by Jonathan sweeping in Truman in 1970 just brought home to me how this panel in particular is incredibly experienced and schooled and richly educated in the topics we're covering, but also the history of those and their parallels in America. And I just think it's been a great discussion and a broad and nuanced one as a result. So hats off in particular to John, David, and Norm, who bring such depth of understanding to the topics under discussion. But now time for our Talking Five final feature. Today's question comes to us from Bobby Erdosh, and it is, will the identity of the leaker of the Supreme Court opinion be discovered? Possible, but unlikely. If they write a book. (laughs) No, but came from the right. Yes. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to John, David, and Norm. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. And we're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts, about special and wide-ranging topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. 
And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much to the multi-talented Dessa for explaining congressional use immunity. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.